Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. So we're, uh, we just finished a series on covenant and kingdom, looking at these two mega themes through the pages of the Bible of relationship and responsibility. And we're going to move now into a, a short series of four weeks, calling it We Will. And the intent behind We Will is we're going to take uh, what could be random topics or seem to be random topics, but to say this is the kind of church that we want to be. It's not everything that we want to be, but these are, these are four things that we want to have um, as strong values of how we walk out our life as a church and how we walk our life out as individuals. And we're going to start today, we're going to start today, today is um, recognized all over the place as Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so we're going to start today just by saying we will value life. And we're going to focus in on the value of life today, looking at um, God's view, God's command, and then how we walk that out, how we respond to God's command. That's how I'm going to break up the morning, is God's, uh, God's image and how he looks at us, God's command and how he, he tells us to operate, and then our response to that. I was watching, I don't know if you guys have heard of a couple of guys that do this thing called the Bible Project. Uh, I think one of them used to be connected to Blackhawk Church, and he has since moved out to the West Coast. They put together phenomenal videos with teaching through the Bible, both on books of the Bible specifically, but also like thematic um, deals where they'll walk through something that shows up through the pages of the Bible. And I was watching one of their videos this last week that talks about justice and righteousness, and I found it excellent. You could, you could search the Bible Project and um, find their justice video, and you'll notice some of the things. I'm giving a, like an anti-plagiarism note here. Some of the things that you'll hear this morning, I'm taking from them. And one of them is the intro. They open this video with this kind of, it's both comedic and pointed uh, at the same time, saying, if you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you were a honey badger, you would go through life without any regard for anybody else. You just wouldn't care about anybody else. You'd just rip them to shreds. And if you were a panda and had twins, it's very common for you to throw out one of your babies so that you could care for the other. But if a human did any of those things, we would call that wrong. We would call that unfair. We would call that unjust. And the question that we get to is, why is that? Why are humans different? Why are there different expectations for humans than for animals? Animals just kind of live by instinct, and they survive. Humans are called to something different. The Bible opens with this beautiful account of God's creative work. The, what is going on in Genesis 1 and 2 is uh, absolute beauty happening. Out of nothing, God is creating. That's something that uh, we can replicate creation. Science can lead us down great roads of saying we can help with health. We can learn how to do things. We can grow bones in labs. We can't create out of nothing. God God is creating out of nothing. Day and night, 
the heavens and the earth, land and sea and plants, the sun and the moon and stars. And then he fills it with fish and birds and the animals all over the land. And then people. And God sets people apart for each step in um, what seems like poetry. God says, he made this and it's good. And he made this and it's good. And he made this and it's good. And then he makes people. And he says, that's very good. And there's something that distinguishes people or separates people from the rest of all creation. Genesis 1.27 points to exactly what that is. Genesis 1.27 said, So God created mankind, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That God creates humankind in his image. That nothing in all of the rest of creation is given that kind of value, is given that importance, is given that designation. Humankind... uh, Man and woman together, collectively, we all are stamped with image of God on us. And this was a big deal. So that you get into Exodus and Moses leading the people out, and you get to the Ten Commandments, and the second one is, you will not make an image of anything that you bow down and worship. A God or something that you find here on earth, a person or an animal, I don't want you bowing down to any kind of image. And the reason that he's doing it in Exodus 20 there is because that was common practice. If you look uh, to Egypt, they viewed Pharaoh as deity. They viewed Pharaoh's son as the son of God. And so they would erect statues and worship Pharaoh and worship this image of God that they had in their midst. And God says, I don't, want to, I don't want you to do that first because the first commandment says, I don't want you to bow down or give your life to anybody but me. I don't want anybody else stealing your focus and attention. But then that second one around image is saying, I don't want you to bow down to an image. I don't want you to see the image of God in something you create because I've already created something that bears my image. And it's you. It's not just Pharaoh, though Pharaoh bears the image of God. It's not just Pharaoh's son who bears the image of God. There's not a hierarchy of image bearers. God says, all of humankind bears my image. And so don't set up some kind of idol, some kind of altar, some some image that allows you to narrow your focus on just what the image of God is. I want you to look around you every day and see my image in your midst. This, I think, gives us that he would stamp humankind with his image, says, if you want to see what God is like, humankind is made to reflect it. We're both reflections and uh, representatives. It goes the other way, too. That God sent us in the whole of creation to represent to all of creation and to each other who he is, what his character is like, so that we bear his image as a representative 
and let each other know and let all of creation know. Now, this has implications for the way we treat the world. I think Christians should be environmentalists, that we should care and steward for the world we live in. But even more than that, we should care for each other. We should care for people who out of all creation bear the image of God. And we represent that. We don't just embody it, we represent it and we help people to see it. And so what you can take from that is that as God says, don't set up an image and narrow your focus, what he's saying is every single person bears my image, which then means every single person is incredibly valuable. You can't take somebody who bears the image of God and say, that's not all that valuable. To do that is to make less of God. And to do that, obviously, is to make less of people. So every single person is valuable. Human life starts at conception. That one, Psalm 139 says, God, you, I'm... Fearfully and wonderfully made, you knit me together in my mother's womb so that God was imparting value even before the birth process happened. That in the womb, God is giving this person great care. At conception, human DNA shows up that separates us out from all of the rest of creation. In the womb, God is already working in somebody's life that that is a human. And this is why we say abortion is wrong. Because it takes a life that God has stamped with his image and says, we don't deem you valuable enough to live. And that makes less of God. And that makes less of people who bear his image. It starts at conception and it goes all the way through to the end of life. I love, and this, this verse can kind of be taken comedically, but I think it has great value too. Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4. God says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been uh, born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. So it's like he's, he's going back to pre-birth value. Even to your old age, I, I love this part, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, like he calls it out, to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you and I will bury you. Or, uh, bear you. I will carry and I will save. God's saying human life is valuable all the way to the end. So like you can great take the gray hair bit, like literally, that God is... God is the God who sustains. I, I'll never be able to take the gray hair really as literally. Just, I'll, I'll assume it goes to the baldness. God, God says from beginning to end and everywhere in between, value is here. It doesn't start low and then grow up to like you're 18 to 22 and it peaks there and then starts to diminish again until you're 84 and we start to talk about euthanasia. Like, that's why we say euthanasia is wrong. Because life is valuable. At conception all the way to death and everywhere in between. 
Now, we as humans, as humankind, have this capacity uh, to devalue others. And we do it as a way of ranking value so that it benefits us. Individuals do it. uh, Communities do it. Countries do it. Civilizations have done it all throughout time. We'll rank somebody's value and we'll put them lower than us so that we can thrive, so that we can stand on their backs and thrive because of that. At other people's expense, we grow. And the weaker, the more vulnerable somebody is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. But God put his image in every single person. It's not about what we have to offer. It's about the image we bear. And this is why, this is why justice and righteousness matter so much to God. So God calls out Abraham into a covenant. He says, you're going to be my representative and uh, future generations are going to be too numerous to even count. I want you to be my representative, to bear my image in this world. And walking out the covenant for Abraham had certain responsibilities with God as his king. Genesis 18, verse 19, God is talking about Abraham and his, uh, his command to Abraham. God says, For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So God shows up and says, I have a covenant for you. I'm going to bless you. And people who bless you, I'll bless. And people who curse you, I'll curse. And your your descendants are just going to blow up around the world so that you can represent me, so that people can be connected to me. And he says, I want you to walk out and do righteousness and do justice. Now, both of those are like, those are pretty Bible-y terms often, especially righteousness. Uh, Righteousness We've come to understand it uh, often in church circles as a personal piety, as a personal way of living life so that I, I, I do sin management really good. And I have a personal holiness that I can present to God and He smiles and approves on. And that's, there's something too, like offering yourself to be made holy and giving your best to God But I think understanding all of righteousness in that way, again, is a very narrow understanding of righteousness. The idea of righteousness is really simply understood in right relationships. Righteousness means right relationships with God and with others who bear God's image. So, what defines your relationship with God? How do you stand in His presence? How do you live your life with him and for him. Righteousness is about that relationship you have. And then how do you look around at the people in your life? And how do you treat them? How do you see them? You can't live a righteous life before God and dismiss dismiss the image of God in others and not treat them according to that. Justice is also this huge theme in the Bible. Two kinds of justice, being retributive justice that is like 
if you've done something wrong, you're paying the consequences. If you've broken something, you're working to fix it. You're, like you, there's a payment involved. And then restorative justice. And restorative justice goes beyond just, I broke something, I should pay for that. Restorative justice is, it's about seeking out people who need help and helping them. Not just identifying it, but offering something to help. And we can see it all over the pages of the Old Testament. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 say, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That God says, there are lots of people who don't have a voice. And I want you to speak up for them. It's mind-boggling, just as an example, to see what happens, uh, what has happened with the, the, the U.S. gymnast team when so much pain and abuse has been afflic- uh, afflicted on these girls and women by somebody who had power in their life, and they're collectively starting to realize it, and they're collectively starting to have a voice where they didn't have a voice. And I think in God's economy, so much of this could have been prevented if people who had a voice used it for people who didn't. And I love that they have a voice now. And you can see an anger kind of coming out, and I think it's a justified anger. And what I hope is that they're coming to realize their own power and they're coming to realize their own voice doesn't turn into what has happened throughout um, humankind often is the people who have been oppressed and the people who have been hurt, once they find themselves in power, become oppressors and hurters, right? And they start to wield a power uh, to hurt others. And I hope that doesn't happen to them. But I love, I love when people who have had no voice find a voice. And yet God calls us to speak up for people who don't have a voice. Jeremiah 22, verse 3 says, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. This is a... This is counterintuitive to the way the world works because we tend to put people down who are weak and vulnerable so we can thrive and we get something out of them. And God says, I want you to see the people who are weaker and vulnerable and I want you to lift them up. Stop putting them down. Lift them up, God says. This is justice and this is righteousness. Micah 6, 8 is, to me is like, the encapsulation of the gospel in the Old Testament, the way that we look at people. It says, God says, um, it's like we have this dialogue with God in Micah uh, 6, 6. What what am I going to bring before God? Am I going to do all these kinds of good things? Am I going to offer sacrifices to him? Am I going to give a whole lot of stuff? I give my life. And God says this, this is what I want. I don't want those things. I want this from you. I want you to do justice. Like, personal piety only goes so far. 
I want you to do justice. I want you to see the value in people and treat them accordingly. I want you to see people who are low and I want you to bring them up. I want you to love mercy. This, this may be my favorite word in the entire Bible, mercy, chesed in Hebrew. This love beyond the call of duty, a committed love that will stop at nothing to take care of others. And it's mostly within the family, but then it, uh, it branches out from there. I want you to do justice. I want you to love mercy. And I want you to walk humbly before God. Psalm 146, 7 through 9, talks about the God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free, and the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Say, if you are living not in accord with uh, the image of God, you're not reflecting him in the way that you're living, and you're not treating people and seeing the image of God and treating them accordingly, he says he brings that to ruin. Like, I'm going to destroy that kind of life because I want you to get value, and I want you to live in it. So we see it through the Old Testament, and we see it, Jesus embodies this. Restorative justice is all over the place in Jesus' life and ministry. And we see it. We talked about restorative justice being like seeking out people who are in need and helping them. Jesus says something so very similar and goes beyond that. He says in Luke 19.10, I've come to seek and save. Not just seek and help, but seek and save. I'm looking for people with a need, and I've come for them. Not for what they can give me, but for what I can give them. I want to rescue them. He let the children come to them, which is remarkable because he didn't let them come to him because they were cute. Like, that's how we do it. Well, like, oh, I love kids. They're just, they're high energy and they're cute. And like, that wasn't what was going on in Jesus' day. Kids had very little value. Very little value because they had nothing, they had nothing to offer. They couldn't do work. They couldn't bring in an income. They couldn't really help. They were kind of a nuisance. You may have felt that if you're a parent, right? And the reason, the reason we value kids is not because they're productive. The reason we value kids is because they bear the image of God and we're told to take care of them. And that's what Jesus is doing when he invites them to him is he's saying people who, he's, people who are vulnerable have a special spot with me. People who cannot offer much, have a special spot with me. He fed the crowd who didn't have food. Likely the reason they didn't have food is because they're poor. They didn't have the resources to bring food with them. And he's just giving to them. Jesus had all kinds of restorative justice for women. The woman at the well who had been rejected by so many people, and Jesus sat down and he had time for her. And he spoke to her not in a, not in a, a, a fluffy, passing over the tough stuff of life kind of way. He spoke and he penetrated her heart, but he did it in a way that breathed life into her. The woman caught in adultery in John 8, 
that Jesus would get down next to her and say, all these men here are here to condemn you, and I won't. He said, go and sin no more, right? But he said, I'm here, and I'm with you, and I want you to live a life where you can stand up. The woman who had been bleeding, I think for 12 years, Jesus touches her or allows her to touch him, which would have made him unclean, but Jesus breaks that rule. Jesus said, you are valuable, and I want to help. Even, even Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet with the Mary and Martha story, and she, Martha's running around doing all kinds of stuff, and Mary sits at Jesus' feet. That was, that was revolutionary in the day because men were the ones who had the invitation to come and be taught. And women had uh, the gift of hospitality or the role, I don't, I don't know if you want to say merely of hospitality, but that was their place. Martha's running around and she gets mad because Mary's not doing what she's supposed to be doing. And Jesus says, Mary's invited. Mary recognizes that she's invited. And I'm not going to take that away from her. You're, you're welcome to come and learn. And that was revolutionary. In Luke 4, when Jesus starts his ministry and says, this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen when the kingdom of God shows up. The day of Jubilee, and I'm here to bring it to you. Healing and sight and freedom and liberty. Jesus showed us a different way to use power by serving instead of by taking. Ultimately, Jesus uses his power to become sin for us so that he becomes sin and we become daughters and sons. We become daughters and sons of God and it is an unfair trade. Jesus uses his power to enact that. And he shows us what God's power is all about. God values life, every life. And when we recognize ourselves as his image bearers, we have a responsibility to do something. To do something. When we recognize this, that, that Jesus has set us free, we use our freedom to help others. So our response, if we've looked at God's view and God's image, and we looked at God's command to do justice and righteousness because of the image that he put on every life, our response is a call to righteousness and a call to justice and to recognize what's being said in those, what's, what's being meant in righteousness and justice, that these are, these are relational words. You can't have a righteous life in the desert. Not fully. You can't have a righteous life in a cocoon. You might have a good relationship with God, but I question that even too. Because God says, Jesus says, the most important command is to love God with everything you've got. And then the second, which is equally, like cannot be separated from it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. To love others, love God and love others. They are inseparable. So righteousness is about relationships. How are your relationships? And where are you, where are we going and searching for people who don't have a voice, 
going and searching for people who need help, going and searching out the vulnerable and the needy and not casting judgment, but saying, we're here to help. That's righteousness. That's justice. Jesus brought about liberty. He made us righteous. Right? He imparted righteousness upon us. He set us free. But that freedom has never been intended for us to do whatever we want to do. The freedom is meant to call us to live the kind of lives that we're meant to live, to call us to live in accord with our image. Like the Ten Commandments are given not just so that we can see our sin. The Ten Commandments are given in the Old Testament to say, this is what a life bearing my image looks like. And we fail. And Jesus says, I got you. I'll impart righteousness on you. But I want you to bear my image, passively and actively. Anybody can do it. If you look at the Old Testament stories of Joseph and Moses, Joseph is a story of the oppressed, right? And yet he bears God's image. And he, uh, the end of Joseph's story says all of this happened for the, for the saving of many lives. Joseph is a guy who was not, uh, didn't often find himself in a privileged position. He had a roller coaster of a life. And yet he's able to lean in and do justice and do righteousness. And if you flip just a little bit uh, into the next generation, Moses is a guy who had almost the opposite story. Moses is a guy who grew up uh, in the definition of privilege, being given all kinds of opportunities. And he tries to enact justice through violence. He, he sees something wrong in the world, and he tries to fight it violently, and it doesn't work, and it wrecks him. And he goes into a 40-year midlife crisis. It's actually the middle of his life crisis. And God uses that to say, you've tried it by your own means. Now, try it by mine. And Moses then is able to lead people toward justice. God uses both. So it doesn't matter where you are if you feel like you're, you're a part of the privileged, which in this room we all are, or if you identify at times with part of the oppressed, which some of us are in this room in some ways, it does, that, that isn't a prerequisite for living a righteous life or living a just life. Wherever you are, you can start in relationships. And it looks like justice for the, the vulnerable and the oppressed. So it's about abortion. Because those kids don't have voices. They cannot defend themselves. But it's also about police brutality. And it's about civil rights. And it's about human trafficking. And it's about orphans. And it's about kids in Mexico that we've been highlighting. It's about relationships that we have in Senegal. It's about seeing the value of life in every single person. I think sanctity of life is about moms who are about to have an abortion and, and helping them and loving them, not in a condemning way, but in a valuing way. And dads 
who just got somebody pregnant and don't have any idea what to do. And so they feel like their best choice is to run away or their best choice is to try to push ending a life because they're stuck. Value in life means recognizing the value of every single life from baby to mom to dad to uh, reaching across cultures around the world everywhere. The image of God calls us to take action. Abortion is wrong because it's about idolatry. The idols of convenience are very common with abortion. Not in every case, but it's very, very common. It's the life I want. And uh, placing, uh, placing the value of life in different, different places, like the value of this life is more important than the value of this life. And that's not how God sees. That's not, that's not how we should see. Now, I, I, I don't think that the right response is to do this and say we won't value like a mother's life or a father's life. We won't value this life in favor of valuing the baby's life that our response is to do this and raise the value of everybody. Uh, Not to raise the value, but to recognize the value, right? And pull people up to that. So we're all sinners. You guys agree with that? Like every single person. It's what I love in John 8 when Jesus says, I won't condemn you. I didn't come to condemn you. I I came to bring you back to God. We're all in that place. So even people who have considered abortion or who have gone through an abortion, like the same God who calls all of us righteous calls to them with grace and with mercy. We are all sinners saved by grace. And an abortion doesn't make somebody exempt from that. An abortion doesn't take away somebody's image as a God-bearer. And it doesn't take away their value or make them unsavable. I don't know all of your stories. If any of you have had an abortion, there is grace that meets you there. And I don't want to diminish you by raising the value of life. This is not an issue that is exempt from grace. So what does it look like for us to radically value life? What will we do? We're saying this is, this is a series of saying we will, we will value life. What is it that we as a church will do? What is it that we as individuals will do? And the first thing that I want you to apply, that I want us to apply, is I want you to see differently. I want you to see the image of God in people. Because of the image of God, I want you to look at people differently. And I don't want you to see them with all of the worldly labels. I want you to see the one label that matters. It's the image of God, God-bearer. When you look at somebody, see that written across their forehead. This person bears the image of God. And so I treat them accordingly there's a see and there's a do 
So the do, I want you to do something. I want you to do justice. And I want us to do mercy, especially to the vulnerable, especially to people who need help, who don't have a voice. Give your time to people who need help. Give your talents. Like you, all of us are hardwired with certain abilities. And whether they're spiritual gifts or just natural abilities, I think they've all been given to us by God so that we can do something with them. Use your talents and give them away to people. Not just so that you can thrive and be fulfilled, operating according to who God made you to be, but so that others can thrive. Use that. So ask, what am I good at and how could I give that away? What do I love doing and how could I bring other people into it in a way that benefits them? Andy's really good at hunting. Andy just took me hunting. It was a way that he could help a vulnerable person like me experience something and live life more fully. And so that's a super trivial, right? And yet, it was a way that a person could bring somebody else into something. That's where it starts. I want you to use your treasure to help people. Like, the story of the loaves and fish, where Jesus multiplies the loaves and fish, started with something that somebody had in their hand. Somebody had this and said, this is all I've got. And Jesus said, I can take that and use it, right? What you have may seem insignificant insignificant to you. And yet God can take that and blow it up. God can take it and use it for impact and use it for influence. I want you to tithe. And I want you to see the connection between tithing and righteousness and justice and the relational component. And I'm so grateful. This isn't, this, I never want to do it in a, in a heavy-handed kind of manipulative way, but to say that this is about integrity and this is all wrapped up. We just celebrated the best financial year that we've had in an era. That's it. That's incredible. And instead of going into coast mode, I want to I say, let's keep growing. Let's keep doing it. And see the integrity of the relationships that happen because of it. When you give, when you give, when we give, I'm a part of it. We as a church get to help. We have relationships with CareNet and the Pregnancy Hotline and Wright Middle School and Living Hope down in Mexico and Senegal, and Dresember. Like, when you give, things happen. And it's connected to righteousness. It's connected to justice. Value is more than voting. What can you do on a daily basis to value life? What is in front of you? So as a church, again, CareNet, is this wonderful organization here in Madison that helps come alongside uh, mothers and fathers who don't know what to do with their pregnancy and to love them and to help them with their choice. Like CareNet will offer a mom and their baby a year of free housing after birth. 
And I love that because it, does, it says we will not value life up to birth. We will value life. And we will continue to serve you. And we will continue to love you. Because we want you to be able to not just give birth to a child, but to raise that child in a healthy home. And we know that you need help with that. Not in a condescending way, but in, a, in an empowering way. I love that we have a relationship with them. Uh, pregnancy Hotline is just down the road from Park Street, and it has a diaper bank. just gives away loads and loads and loads of diapers. And I think that's justice. I think that's a piece of justice and value in life. Wright Middle School. Uh, I don't know how much you know about what Wright Middle School is. It's a fantastic school in the heart of Madison, just a block away from our Park Street location. It has been a charter school which means that everybody who attends there has to apply. It's not a neighborhood school. It's pulling from all over the place. And they have, they have built such a high standard of education there. But everybody in the school gets free lunch. And I think everybody in the school gets free breakfast as a way of saying, we're going to take away the stigma that happens in a lot of places when you're like, oh, you have free lunch. And something happens where their, their value is seen as less, which is wrong. But Wright just says, we're going we're gonna to take that away. The staff there are excellent. And in, a, in the relationship we have with them, they're asking us to help. They're actually offering help. So Friday, some sixth graders from Wright School marched down the block to Park Street and cleaned for an hour and then got to sit down with a couple of guys from Park Street to say, who are you? Who, what is Damascus Road Church? What are you all about? And I love that kind of growing relationship, that they're serving, and they're, they're recognizing the place of service in leadership. We have a place to help them. So I sat down with their guidance counselor and said, what's, what's a way that Damascus Road Church could help Wright Middle School? And this is, I'm going to push for a response here. Um, it's happening both here and as Michael preaches over at Park Street this morning. They said one of the biggest places we could use help is at lunchtime. On the playground, playing with kids and being sort of like a uh, playground supervisor, but also in the lunchroom, like with the school store, uh, and just mingling kids. Lunchtime is a time where we could use all hands on deck, and we could use more hands. And so as Michael and I were preparing for this message together, one of the things that, that we would love to see coming out of today would be 10 people from Damascus Road Church who would say, I can do that. I can give one lunchtime a week for the rest of the school year and go give that time and see it as doing justice, restorative justice of seeing people who have a need and acting up and helping. If you can do that, I would love to talk with you about it. I'd love for us this next week to be able to contact Wright Middle School and say, we're with you and we're here to help. And we have people who are willing to give to that. If you could give, and I know it's awkward. Middle school is so awkward. I, I know that. And you might feel really awkward walking into a place. And I want to challenge you to not let that stop you. I have felt that tension. I know that tension. 
in all my years of student ministry, I'm not sure I ever got reconciled to the, like feeling completely at home with middle school students. <laughs> They're just a different breed. But we love them. And we love them actively. And we want to help where there's a call for help. If you can, talk to me. God may be doing something else in you. I don't want to restrict it to that. God may be doing something in you to say, what is justice? What does justice and righteousness look like in my life? And I want you to be free to pursue that. I want you to be, be free to listen to the voice of God. And if he's putting something on you, I want you to hear it. And I want you to be able to respond to it. And to not let the fact that we don't have like a church-wide movement towards something get in the way of you saying, this is what I think God is calling me to do. And I want you to step into it. Sanctity of Life Sunday is about valuing life. It's, I think, about valuing all of life. And it comes down to seeing the image of God in every single person seeing how God's character reflects that, how Jesus embodies that and walked it out, and how we're called as a response to his image in people to walk out justice and righteousness so that we live Micah 6.8. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have a place that we can call home. That we have a sense of belonging here together. That we've shared stories, that we've shared lives. Uh, and we're free to be here. And I thank you for the value that we see in each other. The value that's recognized in this room. That you put in us. And I pray as we grow together that you would make us a people uh, who deeply value you, who deeply value the relationships that we have, and deeply value people with whom we don't yet have a relationship. Help us to be people who represent you as image bearers and go after those, especially the vulnerable, to love, to offer justice, to live righteously. Will you make that true of us? That we could say collectively, we will value life. Amen.